Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. In a world filled with grand conspiracy theories, it can be difficult to nail down a proper villain. After all, there's no shortage of bad actors. But when it comes to the war on vaping, there really is only one, the billionaire Michael Bloomberg. The former New York mayor and failed U.S. presidential candidate is well known for his aggressive moralizing regarding the consumption habits of middle-class Americans. Whether it be soda, sugar, or nicotine products, Bloomberg is a prohibitionist with an agenda that he backs up with his billions. But Bloomberg also has a global presence. He is the single largest worldwide funder of programs and propaganda dedicated to the eradication of vaping. Couched in an effort to fight tobacco use, Bloomberg has invested over $1 billion into a global network of partners with a dastardly mission. Cajole, strongarm, or buy off governments of low and middle income countries so that they would implement harsh restrictions, taxes, and even bans on low risk nicotine products such as vaping. The activities of Bloomberg funded groups in low and middle income countries are beginning to give rise to scandal and international consumer groups like INCO are turning up the heat. In this special three-part series of RegWatch, we will discuss what Michelle Minton, senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, calls Bloomberg's philanthro-colonialism. We'll discuss the Bloomberg model with Roberto Sussman, a consumer advocate from Mexico. And we start off in this episode of RegWatch with a discussion of the disastrous Bloomberg-backed vape ban in India with Samrat Chowdhury, president of INCO, the international network of nicotine consumer organizations. Joining us today to talk more about Bloomberg's war on vaping and the impact it's having on tobacco users in India is Samrat Chowdhury, director of the Association of Vapors India. Samrat, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thank you for having me, Ben. Now, you're also the president of INCO, the international network of nicotine consumer organizations. Let's have you start there. What is INCO? So INCO is, uh, stands for International Network of Nicotine Consumer Organizations. It is formed uh, of 40 consumer organizations in 35 nations who came together to form an umbrella body so that we could have a say in policy making at the international level. Because a lot of policy is decided at the FCTC and then it trickles down. But consumers don't have a voice uh, at, at, in these. Not only don't they have a voice, but they're also often actively excluded from these discussions. Give our viewers some scope about the problem of tobacco use in India. It must be massive. Of course it is. You know, uh, it's, it's a large country of 1.3 billion people, of which 270 million people use tobacco daily of which 120 million are smokers. So it's a huge problem. Uh, there are over a million deaths from tobacco use every year. Uh, most of uh, tobacco uh, trade is unregulated. So cigarettes, uh, unlike in uh, many countries, which where cigarettes form almost 80, 90% of tobacco consumption, in India, cigarettes form about 11% of overall tobacco consumption. So there's a wide range of tobacco use of different products. And smokeless tobacco products outnumber smoking products by two to one in terms of use. Now, that's obviously different than, I guess, anywhere else in the world. Yes, it's a it's unique uh, tobacco use spectrum that we have in India, and which calls for intervention which is targeted and specific to categories. Now, one of those uh, smokeless tobacco products, it, it does quite a bit of harm. What is that? 
So unlike in the West, where smokeless tobacco is generally considered to be less harmful than smoking variants, in India, uh, the smokeless tobacco is deadly. It, it leads to about 350,000 deaths a year. Uh, India has 80% of oral cancers in the world. So it's, it's a large problem. It's uh, primarily because of the production process. Where they dry the tobacco, they add some additives into it, including nicotine sulfate, and also use lime, slake lime, uh, to, you know, with which the tobacco goes. So all this makes it really deadly. Uh, also, it's really cheap. So affordable to many Indians, uh, especially in the rural areas. So with regarding uh, the global picture, who's the enemy? Bad intention is the enemy. Misguided policy is the enemy. I don't uh, believe that anyone is out there to uh, uh, prevent a solution from taking place. But people have misguided ideas. You know, and that uh, when you have a lot of money, uh, then you can actually uh, push those ideas really far to the detriment of people whom you're trying to help. So I think uh, uh, a major part of the problem is the Bloomberg funding, but also uh, the way uh, perhaps Michael Bloomberg has been advised on the issue and the opinions he has formed. And that's being rolled out uh, into uh, countries, especially the developing nations where these uh, NGOs funded by Bloomberg carry a lot more weight. They're, they're more influential. They are uh, integral part of policy making. Uh, and then this has been aided by WHO because Bloomberg is now an advisor to WHO. So the sanction from WHO makes things worse. There's a lot of prestige when it comes to uh, working with the WHO so closely as Bloomberg does and then everybody else down the chain. Yeah, I mean, that's how uh, it operates. You know, the, I mean, uh, the Bloomberg funding and the Bloomberg funded NGOs advise uh, policy to FCTC which then adopts it, which then gets legal sanction or sanction for other countries to then adopt these policies. To give you an example, when India banned vaping uh, in 2019, uh, the bill started with uh, a statement that we are complying with WHO guidelines. So that's the sanction. And WHO had said that countries uh, who cannot, uh, uh, countries should regulate or ban vaping. So they went for the second option and banned it, saying that the WHO asked us to do it. Now, the ban on vaping, um, how did that happen? And what's been the impact of that? Has Have people just continued to vape, or is it really, has there been a crackdown? The vaping ban was, uh, I would say, a perfect storm, where uh, uh, anti-vaping NGOs funded by Bloomberg uh, made a lot of noise, did a lot of uh, lobbying for it, uh, influenced a lot of state governments who started imposing bans. And that created a groundswell for a national ban. The other element to this is, of course, uh, uh, the Indian government's own financial interest in tobacco companies, uh, where the government owns a third of the cigarette monopoly. So on the day of the announcement of the ban, the stock prices of these tobacco companies went up. So uh, there are some people who benefited from it, but the loss was to uh, uh, the smokers who could have transitioned to something less harmful. So the ban has largely been ineffective. The devices and liquids are still available. India is among the largest producers of liquid nicotine. So uh, so it's available for cheap here. Uh, and there are Indian e-liquid makers. Uh, the problem is that the, uh, the image of vaping has, you know, fallen off the cliff. A lot of people believe that vaping is uh, more dangerous than smoking. And uh, smokers who want to transition now 
uh, to something less harmful don't have either the means or uh, don't know where to find these devices. So India is one of the largest tobacco producers in the world, I think, next to China, correct? That's correct. And so, obviously, you would also be one of the largest liquid nicotine producers in the world. And yet, uh, yet vaping is banned in the country. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how weird it is. Because tobacco in some 30 other forms is available at every nook and corner of the country. But one of the least harmful ways of consuming nicotine is banned. So if that, that is quite strange, and I don't know how anyone explains that to anyone. I mean, except for the kids' argument. But uh, the way it was done was right after Evali. And uh, statements were given in our parliament saying that kids are dying in the U.S. Without, of course, any mention that it was nothing to do with nicotine vaping. Now, you mentioned that um, the government of India is one of the largest investors and one of the largest cigarette companies, tobacco companies in the world. And yet, I'm assuming that India is still welcome at the table at the World Health Organization. Exactly. You know, and this is one thing that we have been rallying against. So the Article 5.3 is used, uh, is a vague in its wording and also used in uh, strange ways. You know, for example, we consumers, when we talk about our access to something less harmful, we are labeled uh, as tobacco industry because of some long stretch of uh, connection using the Article 5.3. Whereas countries which directly participate in tobacco trade or own or partially own tobacco companies are welcome. I mean, to give you an example, the last FCTC COP, which was held in uh, Geneva, India was the chair of that COP. So not only were they uh, you know, allowed in, they were asked to chair that meeting. And I don't see how that is any balance. So if you want to apply a Article 5.3, at least there should be exclusion of, uh, you know, countries which themselves participate, or are tobacco traders in that sense. I can't help but feel, Samrat, that the WHO, the tobacco controllers that are behind it, and Bloomberg maybe himself, is cackling a little bit on what they're able to achieve. Looking at India, if they can, if they can ban vaping in India, where can't they ban it? That's, that's how the juggernaut is rolling. Because after the India ban, uh, there was a lot of activity in Bangladesh pushing the government to ban you know, I mean, the way it, uh, their MO is basically to fund a lot of NGOs in that country who then uh, start hankering for this ban, bringing up emotional arguments, denying science, and that creates some sort of a pressure on the government. I mean, that's the way it happened in the in, in India. Uh, there's another element to this that the, the NGOs participate in government programs and in many cases fund government programs directly. So they have a lot of influence. You know, they, are, they have a seat at the table. Uh, it's happening in Philippines, in Mexico, in Vietnam. There are countless examples of uh, money being used to influence policy. Now, uh, Michelle Minton talked about philanthro-colonialism. Uh, could you explain that from your understanding? And of course, India has pretty, pretty notorious relationship, of course, with the colonial power. To me, it's uh, imposing Western ideas uh, or Western context uh, in a situation where that context is harmful. To give you an example, India has large uh, a number of tobacco users, as I pointed out. Most of them are in economic, lower economic strata. Uh, they don't have access to any cessation methods. For example, NRDs in India are unaffordable to cigarette smokers, leave alone beer smokers and smokeless tobacco users. So they don't have access to any cessation service. Neither are there uh, government-run 
cessation centers or any cessation advice or counseling provider. So there's a large population which could benefit by making available, uh, affordable THR alternatives available to them so that they could take proactive steps to reduce harm to themselves. Now, in a situation like that, you have imposed a ban and you have effectively denied these people any uh, means to uh, quit tobacco harm or deadly tobacco use. Uh, and this was imposed without any thought to the Indian context. You know, uh, for example, snus could work really wonders for uh, the smokeless tobacco users. India produces a lot of tobacco and uh, these products could be made quite cheap and affordable for people who could. However, there's still a push against it and, you know, there is still uh, ideological, oh, but they come in flavors. So we're beginning to see that build up a little bit. So uh, that is colonialism to me, where you are uh, trying to, you know, uh, impose your thoughts and ideas in a situation uh, where they're not only use, not useful, but also harmful. Another recent example is that, you know, uh, uh, the new tobacco amendment laws, uh, is an amendment to the tobacco law, uh, which has been written by CTFK and then adopted by the government. Uh, just uh, backtrack on that, just reinforce that statement. The government recently launched uh, an amendment to the tobacco laws, which was written by CTFK, Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids, and released uh, in partnership with the law college, which was adopted, uh, ditto by the government, now it has certain uh, ideas which are, uh, which are which perhaps good in the West, which is, for example, point of sale uh, display bans. Now that is that is all right when you are selling tobacco through tobacco shops or you know establishments, but not for street vendors when you are selling products from a stool. Where are you going to uh, hide your products? Are you going to go across the street and keep it somewhere and then bring it back every time someone asks for it? So a display ban for someone who's selling uh, his products from a stool is, it just doesn't apply. It's not implementable either because there are millions of uh, street vendors. So of, so it is a Western idea which is just being imposed in India and everyone hopes that it will work, but it will not. You've got uh, Inco just came out last week, I believe it was, with the top 10 reasons why bans of low-risk nicotine alternatives to smoking in low- and middle-income countries uh, will do more harm than good. Can you provide a, a little bit of a summary on what this uh, slide deck and what this campaign is that you guys launched last week um, that's going you know, at them for their targeting of low and middle income countries? So the paper makes a lot of detailed points. Uh, and it began when uh, the union last year put out a position paper saying that uh, bans in, are especially needed in low- and middle-income countries. And when asked whether these bans should apply to Western nations, they said no. And also when asked whether these bans should apply to combustible products, they said no. To people in LMICs, to smokers and to people who have transitioned out of smoking, this is highly discriminatory because it means that depending on where I live, I should have access to something uh, which can potentially save my life. Also keep in mind that 80% of smokers live in LMICs. So we are talking about almost 800 million people who are being denied access to something less harmful purely because of where they live. This is highly discriminatory. Uh, we thought that, okay, we should uh, rebut these arguments, but do it factually, uh, you know, well-referenced rebuttal, which was also reviewed by a lot of experts before we put it out. Our hope is that uh, 
the way uh, this narrative is being built of uh, this discriminatory ban. And I, I would like to point out that someone proposing this sort of a policy in any other field would not be accepted and would be called out for the discrimination that it's trying to see. However, in tobacco control, a uh, lot of things seem to be okay. You know, we, we seem to be uh, uh, okay with crossing a lot of boundaries and, and uh, barriers for, for normal behavior. So we thought it was important that a counter view be presented uh, to the public and also to lawmakers that these policies come with their own negative outcomes and we should be aware of them. Now we hear a lot, a lot about social justice and usually coming from people on the side that advocates these kinds of bans. Now, there's something that really has a bitter taste in my mouth about their actions here in these countries, yet they are the self-righteous um, social justice warriors. Yeah, I, I like, uh, I mean, I remark uh, a lot at how they twist ideas. You know, the social justice idea has been twisted to mean that people who don't smoke have a right to free environment. Of course they do. And with vaping, that is indeed possible because the secondhand risk is reduced in orders of magnitude. But they wouldn't look at that. It's a, it's a moralistic idea of creating a, a tobacco and now nicotine-free society. And they have been at this for decades. However, since 2000, uh, when the FCTC was beginning to be formed, the number of global smokers has remained above a billion. So it's not that these policies anyway have worked, but now they are trying to shift focus from perhaps those uh, failures to, uh, uh, to opening a new front. It seems to me that Bloomberg and his group, Bloomberg et al., are going into these uh, low and middle income countries, and they're basically saying to those governments, you are not sophisticated enough to bring, bring in you know, low-risk nicotine products into the country. You don't have the resources. You don't have necessarily the management skills. You don't have the enforcement capabilities. You know what? It's going to be just a huge mess. Why don't you just take our off-the-shelf regulations, go ahead and pass them, pat on the head, and here's a little bit of money, too, and some prestige for your effort. That's precisely what's happening, except that uh, instead of regulations, they are proposing a ban, which is a really hard measure, uh, without perhaps understanding that if you cannot or if you do not have the capability to enforce a regulation, you're also incapable of enforcing a ban, which is exactly what we have seen in Mexico, in Thailand, in Brazil, where there have been sale bans in place for almost a decade. But that hasn't dented uh, availability. There are rape shops in Thailand now, despite there being a sales ban. So if regulation is not going to work, or you're proposing, or you're uh, saying that it will not work, how are you uh, so sure that a ban would? Of course it would not. And we know uh, from examples already. We also know, uh, you know, to give you another example, uh, so there were uh, smoking bans during the pandemic. There were smoking bans in South Africa and there was also a ban in India. We already know what happened in South Africa. Smuggling went up and the government rescinded the ban uh, because they didn't want these uh, black markets to be entrenched because then they are very difficult to shake off. And exactly the same thing uh, happened in India as a report which came out really recently. Uh, Illegal tobacco trade went up 10 times in that period. So bans have negative outcomes, which, which people need to be aware of. Because if you are trying to devise effective policy, uh, you should be mindful of what effect it will have and what negative outcomes there may be.
Yeah, perhaps I should have uh, phrased that little snide remark I was making by using bans instead of regulations, because it is, it's even worse uh, that they're coming into the marketplaces and, and forcing bans. But yet again, though, that, that argument that they're saying that you aren't sophisticated enough to regulate it yourself. Well, not- yeah, that, that is discriminatory to begin with. You know how uh, uh, they would not be able to say this in any other professional field. It's only in tobacco control, not only, you know, and this is uh, why uh, a paper like this is urgent. Because this sort of thinking is taking hold. In the past year since the union's paper has come out, I have been surprised by how many people in tobacco control have parroted this idea. They buy into the fact that, okay, these countries cannot take care of themselves. The people there uh, cannot decide for themselves. So therefore, we should help them by not giving them access to these devices. That's very paternalistic and completely divested from reality in uh, uh, developing nations. Where I would also like to point out that there is no homogeneous entity called LMICs. There are you know, many countries with very different contexts and backgrounds and to impose one size fits all uh, sort of a policy and that to a hard measure like a ban is going to be ineffective most of the times. So how is INCO's efforts here, uh, do you think, helping or going to help? Well, what we intend to do is to create a counter-narrative to let people know that, you know, uh, A, this idea is highly discriminatory and uh, the reasons why it will not work. And we are outlined 10 reasons that uh, these policies are going to fail. It would be better that low, you know, I mean, harm reduction is especially effective uh, among groups who cannot afford, uh, you know, a NRTs, cessation services, or don't have access to them. In India, for example, there are 20 cessation centers, government-run cessation centers for a population of 1.3 billion, which is hardly, uh, which is nowhere near adequate. These are also countries where people have, uh, or smokers or tobacco users have least access to healthcare, which makes it more important that we look at prevention measures. We look at uh, 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 interventions which uh, do not lead to such negative health outcomes. And harm reduction really works there. And in fact, these countries should not only be adopting but promoting harm reduction among tobacco users. Samrat, back in 2018, you wrote an article that was detailing even back then that Bloomberg money was influencing legislation or at least regulations in India. Fill us in on that and then tell us uh, any examples that have been happening recently. Okay, so uh, sometime back, the government decided to scrutinize foreign funding. Now, one of the things that you cannot do with foreign money is lobby and also file court cases, both of which happened. And then they initially barred these NGOs. However, the Bloomberg influence was so strong that the bans were lifted uh, without any penalty to these NGOs. In fact, right after the India's wave ban, uh, our prime minister went to the U.S. and met, not specifically, but he went for the U.N. assembly and on the sidelines met uh, Mr. Bloomberg. So so that is that is the nexus. Uh, uh, the Bloomberg organizations or the Bloomberg uh, initiative and through its funders, CTFP, directly fund state programs, not in partnership, mind you, directly fund state programs, state health programs. So that gives them a lot of clout. Uh, this is not just happening in India. In Philippines, as you know, the legislators have picked up on this and have asked uh, their FDA that you can't receive so much 
money from the anti-vaping groups and then push for anti-vaping policy. Something similar has happened in Vietnam. Uh, we know what's happening in Mexico. Uh, the money is, you know, influencing policy. So this uh, appears to be a modus operandi. And we see this also happening in Africa where there's a renewed push by Bloomberg organizations against THR alternatives. So this is happening globally and it is, uh, it is quite serious if you are living in one of these countries because your policies are being co-opted by a foreign power. Uh, it is colonialism from where I sit. And how different is this, say, from, you know, major religious organizations in years past going into similar countries and, and throwing money and influence and weight around to change the way that people lived in those countries? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's similar, but also more insidious because here, uh, you know, there is that moral high ground that we're here to save you from perhaps yourselves. The righteousness is the problem here, you know, because since they believe that they are correct, uh, they also think that they have no obligation to listen to the other side because they're correct. And that is a problem. And uh, what complicates matters further is that they are well-funded. So money and righteousness is a deadly mix. And that's what we are seeing here. You know, not only are they pushing a dangerous idea, but they're pushing it with a lot of money uh, or funding behind it, which makes it especially deadly. When you want to go after someone, you're going to pick, uh, you know, very uh, flimsy grounds to pick on them. Now, to give you the genesis of INCO, INCO was founded in 2016. For three years, we had a minuscule budget running into hundreds of dollars, right? That's how we were trying to run an international organization. Now, if we are going to band together and organize our movement, we need funds for that. And there are hardly any funds, or in fact, no funds in tobacco harm reduction because the opposition is, A, not only uh, sucking up all the funds, but also actively preventing us from accessing funders. So we put up a proposal uh, to the foundation and uh, they funded that proposal. Now we have an independent board of voluntary uh, consumer members and we run our affairs independently. So the foundation doesn't tell us what to do and we have no contact with Philip Morris. So to say that we're influenced by Philip Morris or we're acting on behest of them couldn't be further from truth. And I think a part of the problem is that there is failure on their part to understand uh, us THR consumer advocates. Because for them, uh, for long or for almost forever, they have been opposed by a, the industry or people who are connected to the industry. For the first time, you have independent consumers who are speaking for their right to access something which is less harmful. And they have not been able to understand the simple point that these are people speaking about their rights, their lives, and how to make them better. And they still consider us in that mode. So I think a bit of uh, uh, shifting of focus or, or them to understand us better is required. From your position, do you think that there might be, you know, this isn't a conspiracy thing, it's more of a seeking power. Do you, is this like of a part of an overall kind of a control mechanism? It could be, you know, it could be that uh, uh, someone who has a lot of money to spend would like to see that money uh, making a difference. In this case, uh, doing what he's spending the money for. So uh, it could be that. It could also be tied to uh, the other interests of the Bloomberg organization because it's also uh, a corporate at the end of the day and it has a lot of programs or businesses that it does in, in these countries. So uh, philanthropy can be used to forward corporate goals and it could be part of that. 
Yeah, always beware of people and organizations that meddle in other people's affairs for their own best interest. Sure, I would say that. You know, I mean, uh, I don't see the benefit to the country from these policies. Yet they tell the country, though, that this is for your own good. Of course. I mean, that's, I think a part of it is how you sell it to them. You know, A, the moral argument. You know, I've seen this argument develop over time. Now, initially, there were uh, arguments based on scientific facts. The vaping is not safer. We don't know what's in there. And all those kind of science-based arguments. But when they started falling flat, we had this emotional argument, but what about the kids? And that seems to have stuck. Uh, so now it's not about science. It's about morality. It's about your vision for a you know perfect world and stuff. And then you uh, push it with a lot of money. Yeah, let's not forget the concept of disgust and contempt. Yeah, I mean, you know, there. I don't know... Um, I can't think of anywhere else where people who are affected by these policies, when they speak up, they are silent saying that you are industry. How would anyone believe that? But in tobacco control, they do. You know, there was a paper put out uh, saying that INCO is, is basically tobacco shills. We are not. We are consumers. We are people who are affected by these policies. And we have a right to be part of policy making. Because if you're going to uh, make policies which affect us without consultation with us, those policies are going to fail, which is what we are seeing happening, which is why everything is so misguided right now, which is why we also uh, want a seat at the table. You know, we want to be part of FCTC, we want to be observers, but there is, uh, of course, a big movement to exclude us. And uh, I will not be surprised it is by the Bloomberg groups trying to guard their turf and, you know, protect their funding. Well, and they're using Article 5.3, the WHO, that article, in the framework convention of tobacco control. Well, see, there's something about Article 5.3. Uh, uh, I mean, of course, they use it against us. You know, one of uh, the arguments used against us has been that since you're connected to them, who's connected to them, who's connected to them, even though there has been no financial transaction, you are uh, working on their behest. And that same paper, lower down, lists that, okay, we received 20 million from the Bloomberg, but we are not influenced by them. So there, there, there is huge dichotomy or two-facedness in what they're saying because they don't seem to be influenced by millions of dollars, but we are influenced without a single penny. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Is it even possible that there's light? Well, see, we don't have an option because we are paying for all this through with our lives. You know, our lives depend on this and we uh, uh, should and we demand access to something which is less harmful. Someone can take a moralistic view and tell us, oh, but if that's important, why don't you just quit? If it were that easy to quit, millions would have quit. You know, so there are reasons for why we are here. So we are not going to go away because we are invested in it with something a lot more than they are, which is not money, which is our health. So we're going to be around. We're going to be pushing, uh, you know, uh, against that narrative. And I think science will also start shifting more and more on this side. And I think soon, or let's hope soon there will be, because the, uh, the harm reduction wars have been fought before. I mean, the drug wars and, and uh, I mean, the similar trajectory, of course, this is taking longer. It involves a lot more people, a lot more money and a, a lot more moralistic outlooks. So it, it will be a long fight, but we are for it.